there's some instinctive element in all of us because we're animals that we like living in packs. Yeah, I think it is what makes us human. The really fulfilling connections are ones where it's almost like magic because you know that you're on sort of the same wavelength with that person. It's really hard to describe. My best friend is someone who we just met and it was instantly like, yeah, this guy. I like this guy. You know, the first time we hung out, it was almost like we were saying the same thing at the same time and it was very, very nice. What constitutes a fulfilling relationship? I'd say shared love for things like Nutella would be one for me. You've got to go the extra mile for that other person. And I think that in return, you'll find that the other person goes the extra mile for you. Someone who will make up choreographed dance routines with me. Yeah, that's when I really know I like someone. Hello and welcome to Pi, where Pi, which you should know by now, guys, stands for Psychologically Informed Environments. In this four-part series, we aim to get to the bottom of why we homo sapiens think, feel and behave the way that we do. The reason we're doing it, because getting a deeper understanding of our behaviour and the behaviour of others has been clinically proven as beneficial for our physical health and our general well-being. Helping me to unpack the human psyche is psychologist and co-founder of The Positive Group, Dr. Brian Marion. Hi, Rick. Sometimes Brian will say hello. Sometimes he will just (laughs) intake his breath, and that is enough for me. (laughs) Uh, So each episode, we will be introducing a different emergent property that we all experience, assessing what it is, how it affects us, and what we can do to adjust it if it comes to that. By now, of course, we all know what an emergent property is. But Brian, just give me one of your classic pithy one-liners to define it. Um, An emergent property basically comes from complex systems that interact. And then we are the complex system in this case. Yeah. But what's interesting is with the process we're talking about here is that it links to the cognitive model where we join up emotion, physiology, behavior, and cognition. And then we see how they interplay together. Got you. So this episode marks the final piece of the puzzle, or the final slice of the pie, if you will. Will you, Brian? Of course. Good. Uh, So if this is the first episode you're hearing, stop. Please stop. Start from the beginning of the series and then work your way to this point. You'll be more psychologically enriched for doing so. Um, At the end of this episode, we'll be looking at how the four emergent properties we've covered interlink. It is going to blow your mind in a good way. Back to usual business, though. The final psychological property we're going to be unpacking is connection. And that basically refers to how our innate desire to be social affects our behaviour and, in turn, our general well-being. So, Brian, what is it about us that has made our relationships with others such a fundamental part of our existence? I think it's because we're basically social animals. In our development over millennia, we've been tribal, we've lived in communities, and we're much safer together. I mean, individual human beings wandering around in the savannah basically had eat me written on their butt because we weren't particularly good with predators. But once you start getting groups of people together, uh, they can start to work out how to defend each other and work together. And we have offspring that require a lot of attention and nurture during their formative years. So we've formed into groups that actually cooperate, collaborate and work together. And I think that's created a lot of the neural wiring for needing that social connection. But in the present day now, away from 
predators, effectively. Why do we still bother making bonds with others? As social animals, we do need each other. And actually, when we live in relationships or communities or families that are supportive, nurturing, it has an incredibly positive effect on our health and our well-being. The opposite of that is feeling excluded or isolated. Uh, That can actually have a very deleterious impact on our health. And how have our brains evolved to help us negotiate myriad relationships then? Well, that's a really good question. Primarily, we need to work out whether people are friends or foes, Mm -hmm. whether we can trust or distrust. And our default mode, actually, as human beings, is that if people aren't familiar and we don't know them, is to actually distrust. If you scan people's brains when they meet new people, their amygdala, their midbrain is very, very active. They're, They're scanning to work out, is this a safe connection? Mm -hmm. Now, if people are friendly and look okay, our amygdala says it's safe. But if it looks a bit different or a bit spooky, then the amygdala stays active and we're very, very wary. So I think trust, distrust is a big issue. Uh, And what about the role of empathy and the role of mirror neurons? Well, mirror neurons are, are basically, they were first discovered in a laboratory with monkeys and they were scanning a monkey's brain And at the other end of the laboratory, they had a monkey who was peeling a banana. And what the investigators were amazed by is that when the monkey in the scanner saw the other monkey having a banana, the same neural circuits activated in the monkey's brain as though he was peeling a banana. And it's probably the source of being able to understand how someone else is feeling. This links into human beings and the concept that's very well documented called the theory of mind. So we work out how other people are thinking in order to be able to work out how they might behave. Now, that isn't an exact science because we can get it completely wrong, where con men con us and people who are very genuine, we think they're untrustworthy when actually they're not untrustworthy. Mm. So it's not a perfect system, but it allows you to start to read some cues about what other people are doing. So with the monkey example, where he's watching his mate eat a banana, that's not happening on a conscious level, is it? No, but it's happening for all of us all of the time. And that's a fantastically important human capacity. Because if you think about a parent who can't understand or read the emotion or the feelings of their child, they don't know whether to respond with love or, you know, whatever. And is this similar then to when someone smiles at you? Almost without thinking, you will tend to smile back, like the smile is kind of contagious. Absolutely. It goes through a very, very fast neural circuit. It's what Daniel Goleman called an open loop. So it goes from retina to midbrain. There is no faster neural circuit in your brain. It even bypasses the cortex. So you'll get a a visceral feeling before you're aware. Before you've processed it. Before you've processed it. Mm. I think one of the important things about mirror neurons and being able to empathize with people is that we start to pick up how they feel and that impacts on how we feel. And this is sometimes known as emotional contagion. But it also can start to cascade through groups quite quickly. So if someone's rude to me, I may then feel threatened and uncomfortable, but I may then start to pass on some of that to other people. So what's the benefit of emotional contagion then? It can create altruism, kindness, compassion, nurture. And there's lots and lots of studies looking at if you prime people with things that make them feel happy, or content, they tend to be much more kind to other people. If, however, they feel stressed or anxious, 
the milk of human kindness curdles and they become much more self-focused and much less interested in their fellow man or woman. Now, if you put this into a professional setting, this starts to impact on the people around us. And if you look at doctors, doctors, when they're stressed or anxious or low, make more clinical errors, prescribing errors, but they also have many more patient complaints because they tend to treat patients like pieces of meat rather than human beings. Now, when they feel better, the milk of human kindness flows again. So essentially, we we developed as a social race because it helped to protect ourselves and our offspring from potential threat. Uh, And now, however many thousand years later, we're using our mirror neurons, which we would have had back then, for more sophisticated purposes. Absolutely. I do get anxious in social situations. I'd say the situation I get most anxious in is job interviews. I have this thing where I get really conscious of my blinking and then I try not to blink as much because I think they're going to notice that I'm blinking. So then I keep my eyes open until they water and I'm just thinking about that. I'd say that's pretty socially anxious. only ever happens when I'm like in my most comfortable place. Whereas like if I'm at work and I'm meeting strangers and stuff or... If I'm at a bar with like no one I know really, I'll never get socially awkward or anxious. It really only happens when I'm feeling like super comfortable. There's two moments I get socially anxious. One of them is in a professional environment. So it's when I think that people around me see through me and think that I don't know what I'm talking about. So it's like, I guess that doubting of why I'm there. And then the second one is you go somewhere and everyone is looking really sharp. And I feel really like, oh, I think I just want to leave. All right, what ways do our relationships affect us now? And I'm assuming lots of ways, Brian. Yes, I think um, our relationships are proving incredibly important from a psychological point of view, but they also link to our health and our well-being. And I think that one of the interesting things is how emotions around inclusion and exclusion can start to actually impact on how we think about ourselves. Because not being able to connect up with other human beings can make us feel depressed and lonely. When the young woman without social anxiety thinks about going to the party, she will actually run a little storyboard in her mind, a virtual reality, where she thinks, fantastic, free booze, free food, meet lots of people, it's going to be fun. She texts a few friends about meeting in the pub beforehand. Now that imagery and that cognition, those thoughts, actually start to make her feel quite excited and happy. She pushes up dopamine, she starts chatting to people, her mood goes up. The young woman with social anxiety is facing exactly the same situation. But her thoughts and images, her storyboard is very different. And she thinks, oh my God, It'll be awful. People will think I'm boring. People will think I'm ugly. No one will talk to me. I'll be stuck in the corner, staring at my feet. And she becomes very, very anxious and probably avoids. But the extraordinary thing is that if she does go to the party, she tends to do what she did in her storyboard. So she tends to stand in the corner, stare at her feet and make eye contact with no one, leave early, which then confirms her belief. It becomes self-fulfilling. Absolutely. Professor of Experimental Psychology at Oxford University, David Clark, has done studies into exactly this. I think most of us uh, get anxious in some social situations. But people with social anxiety disorder find that they get anxious in a wide range of social situations and uh, will try and avoid those situations and it severely interferes with their lives. 
the sort of handicaps that can come with social anxiety you know, start very early. So if you have social anxiety disorder in adolescence, then you're likely to feel very self-conscious in a crowded classroom. And that means you're going to have difficulty concentrating on what the teacher says or indeed participating in uh, class discussions. And of course, that can undermine your learning. So people tend not to get as good exam results as you'd expect given their intelligence level. And then when people get into the, the workplace, they tend to be less likely to be, to be promoted than you'd expect given how good they are at the job because often promotion isn't simply about how good you are at the job, it's also about your sort of social networking skills. So as a consequence, of course, they earn less across their lifespan. They're also somewhat less likely to get married and have children, again, because getting to know other people can be uh, more tricky. Safety behaviours are things that we all do to prevent something that we're afraid of from happening. And if the thing we're worried about is a realistic concern, they're quite useful. If the weather forecast said there was going to be a thunderstorm today, I might leave the house with an umbrella. The problem with safety behaviors, though, is if your fear is unrealistic and then you still do the safety behavior, then you don't get to discover that your fear is unrealistic. And so that keeps the problem going. And there are many safety behaviors that people with social anxiety do. For example, if during this conversation I was worried that you think I'm boring or stupid, then I might censor things and not say them because I was worried they don't sound clever enough. Now, doing that checking and censoring of what I say has two very unfortunate consequences. The first is that if the conversation seems to go okay, my fear that you'll think I'm stupid won't have changed because I'll just think I only got away with it because I did all this monitoring and censoring of what I'm going to say. So safety behaviors keep your fears going. But they also do something else. If we were talking together and I was doing all this monitoring in my head and memorizing what I've said, then the chances are that I would come across to you as though my mind was somewhere else, which of course it is, it's on this memorizing. And if you're talking to someone and their mind seems to be somewhere else, you tend to think, well, they're not very interested in me. And so the problem here is that the safety behavior inadvertently gives the other person the idea you don't want to know them, you're not interested in them. And so, of course, they can be rather less friendly back. So safety behaviors are not only maintaining people's fears, but they are also, to some extent, actually creating the very thing that they don't want to happen because they are unintentionally giving other people the message, you don't want to know them. So one of the ways in which we uh, sort of test our ideas about what it is that's keeping social anxiety going is doing experiments. So in one of our experiments, uh, we got people during a conversation to uh, switch in their own head between the sort of negative image that they tend to have of themselves when they're anxious and then a more realistic image based on video feedback. And uh, what we find is that when people hold their normal negative image in mind, they feel much more anxious. They think they come across less well. That is a distortion because the other person rates them much more positively. But interestingly, the other person does notice something about the difference between when we're holding a negative image in our head and a more positive one. 
and they tend to rate the conversation less positively. So these images that people have in their head have multiple effects. They not only make us feel anxious, but they also actually affect the conversation. And the question is, well, how is that? It's almost magical, isn't it? You just flip a little picture in your head and it affects what the other person thinks about you in the conversation. So that's the impact that our relationships can have on our mental well-being. But what are the repercussions on our physical health? Well, huge. I mean, there's this area of psychological research called psychoneuroimmunology, which connects the immune system up to the psychological well-being. But actually, it extends much beyond or far beyond our, our immune function. What's been shown is that If you're stressed, even at high levels, acute stress, it can start to impact on immune function. So wound healing and the potential to reactivate dormant viruses, latent viruses like herpes simplex or cytomegalovirus get more readily activated. So it does impact on our immune system. The other thing it does, which is fascinating, is it shortens telomeres on the end of your chromosomes if you're chronically stressed. Oh, so I live less long. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because your telomeres actually are the little caps on the end of your chromosome, a bit like the plastic bit on the end of a shoelace. Mm. And they protect the chromosome when it's dividing. And what we know now is that if your telomeres get shorter, you get more abnormalities and it impacts on a range of illnesses. So what's been shown is that things like exercise, stress, but also social support link to the length of your telomeres. Wow. And so the sad truth is that if I'm lonely and depressed, I'm more likely to get ill as well. That's definitely the case. That does not seem fair, does it? (laughs) But there we go. (laughs) So feeling included by others and including others has really amazing consequences. It lifts our moods, it helps us to project positivity towards others, which improves our compassion and perpetuates our good mood. But on the other hand, feeling excluded can get us stuck in this vicious cycle of self-hatred and loneliness, social anxiety and potentially depression. Being excluded for me is a situation that I feel like I know quite well. I got quite badly bullied at school and a lot of that was exclusion from people I thought I was friends with. When I feel excluded, my stomach drops. It kind of makes everything else feel like... It doesn't matter, and that's the only thing that matters is the thing that I'm being excluded from. But it's it's like a physical feeling as well as an emotional feeling. When I was younger, football was a very social thing. Everyone played in lunch breaks. So one lunch break, I decided, yeah, I'll, I'll try this whole football malarkey. And we all lined up against the wall, and the best kids were the team captains, and they were picking their teams. And then it came down to the last two, which was me and another kid. And then they were like, right, let's play. Didn't even get picked. Not only picked last, I didn't even get picked. So given that feeling included by others has these positive impacts on our health, if I wasn't feeling like I wanted to be included before, I absolutely am now. So how can I stop entering these vicious cycles before I'm too stuck to get out? One of the difficulties here is understanding how we are coming across to other people. So increasing our own self-awareness of what our mood state is is really important because my wife sometimes says to me, you know, why are you so bloody grumpy? And I say, I'm not grumpy because I'm unaware of how I'm messaging. Is there ever a slight issue where if I'm reacting 
very quickly on a subconscious level that I am more likely to get it wrong because I haven't really thought about it. I think this links to sort of unconscious bias and stereotypes. It's the mood state driving how we think, feel and behave. And that in Goleman's language is the low road. If you're rude to me, I feel angry, so I'm rude back to you. So what's happening is that we have an emotional brain to an emotional brain conversation. What can be very helpful is to bring your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain back online. So you're taking a step back, giving yourself a bit of space to consider a response. And given that empathy is such a key part of our social interaction and, and social bonding, is it important to remember that the way that we think about something is not necessarily going to be the same as the way that someone else thinks about it? Yes, you're right. I think it also depends on how we're perceiving something, how we process something. So you and I might experience exactly the same thing, but process it very differently because of previous experiences. Mm -hmm. And that would be more trait. But we may also interpret it very differently because you're in a good mood and I'm in a bad mood. And so what tools specifically do you have that help with connection then? Well, the two tools that we've developed for connection are the EB360, and the positivity ratio. The EB360 has two major components. The first component, which is essential, is actually understanding how you are feeling. So the EB bit stands for emotional barometer. And if you remember, we were looking at the emotional barometer in the first slice or section of pie when we were looking at awareness. It encourages you to shine the torch on yourself in an open, curious, and non-judgmental way and to understand how you're communicating and perhaps how you're making others feel. So that's the first step. The second part of the EB is the ability to pick up how other people are feeling. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. If I'm, if I'm leaving work and I wave at a colleague and the colleague doesn't wave back at me, I can start to think that I've done something to upset them, they don't like me, Now, that may be the initial emotional response that I'm getting, and that's the way I'm thinking. But then what the EB360 allows you to do is start to think, well, actually, maybe they're distressed. Maybe they've had some bad news. Maybe they don't want to talk to anyone at the moment. Now, that appraisal starts to change the way I'm feeling. You start to see the world through the lens of the other person, which allows you to see it with more clarity and perhaps explain behaviors in a more reasonable way. Any other tools? The other tool, the positivity ratio, picks up on the work of Barbara Fredrickson. Barbara Fredrickson is a psychologist who's done a lot of work on positive emotions. And what she's shown is that the ratio of statements in a relationship, so in my relationship with my wife or someone else's relationship with their partner, the ratio of positive to negative statements predicts the quality of the relationship, but also the longevity of the relationship. Really? Yeah. What's the ratio? <laughs> well, if you it's go... good to know, I think. <laughs> I'll keep a little tally. <laughs> the data shows that if you go less than three positive to one negative... You've got problems. You can predict the relationship will have trouble. Mm. If it goes down to one positive to one negative it predicts the relationship is unlikely to last for a year. So interestingly, although we enjoy compliments and it's good to get a compliment, the potency of a compliment is much weaker than the pollution of a negative comment. So if someone gives you a criticism, 
it hangs around for quite a long time. So would you effectively be asking people to log interactions with a certain individual or a certain group and say, how many of your interactions do you think were positive and how many do you think were negative? That kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. And when you start doing that, you become aware of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And then you can decide if you want to change it. Because you've got to think about how you're going to describe that interaction. You know, you've got to write it down later. You go, well, was that positive or negative? Maybe it was negative, actually. <laughs> and then and then deal with that. Yeah. Mm. So what's quite interesting then is that the positivity mechanisms that we talked about in the last episode can be used to help with your human connections that we're talking about now. Yep, in our personal relationships, but also at work and if you're playing in a football team or anything, I think these actually can get the best out of people. I'm going to point some members of my football team to positivegroup.org. <laughs> <laughs> So as we come to wrap things up, I think it would be quite useful just to go through each of our emergent properties. My definition of awareness is being aware of how I'm feeling. I think good focus is good thought. Being rational. Good focus allows us to step back and think, and then when we we think, we make better decisions. As soon as you're standing over a situation which has gone terribly wrong someone who is positive is the person that's going to pick up the sticks and be like okay we're moving on we're going to do x y and z and have a solution and just move past the badness that's just happened and make something really good of it connections are basically what make us human relating to and communicating with others is one of life's great pleasures All the topics seem to feed into each other in some way. Exactly. It's very difficult to isolate one of these tools that doesn't impact on the others. So we've covered awareness, focus, connection and positivity. So awareness, Brian. Well, awareness basically is pivotal. It it links to this concept of emotional literacy, self-awareness, insight, understanding. And I think the, the two tools we looked at there were emotional barometry actually becoming aware of how emotions are core operating systems and run how you think, feel and behave. Mm -hmm. And then what we also covered was this concept of an inner coach. How do you talk to yourself in a way that starts to neutralize some of the negative thinking that emotions can create? Got it. And focus? Well, focus is more around attention. What are we paying attention to? And our mood state tends to drive our attentional focus. And the tool we looked at for this was the positive switch, which gives us the ability to shift the focus or the spotlight of our attention from one area to another. And this can act as a very powerful circuit breaker, stopping patterns of worry and rumination that can have a damaging effect on our mood and well-being. And the other tool around focus was the worry filter, because we can spend a lot of our time worrying about things. And if you look at what we worry about The data shows that the majority of the things that we worry about never happen. And when we focus on things that worry us, they tend to get bigger in our head and they tend to be much worse than when things do go wrong. So working out how to divide your worries into useful and useless is a really powerful mechanism for reducing worry. Mm -hmm. And positivity that we talked about last time? So the positivity tools were about directing our attention away from the negative and towards the positive. And they were the positive pin board. And that basically is around asking people to record, recognize and savor things that are good in their lives. And the second tool was the strengths mirror. 
And the strengths mirror is about being able to identify your own strengths and strengths you've shown in the past and then visualizing how you might use those strengths going forward. And then today we've been talking about connection. Yep. And looking at the EB360 and positivity ratio tools. And those are incredibly powerful mechanisms for maintaining healthy relationships. And the, the thing that I'm really taking away from this is that none of these things are separate. So they're all they're all interrelated. And you have this kind of quite, well, incredibly complex situation. Well, it's interesting. I think what's what's happened over the last sort of 20, 30 years is that people have become aware that these are very complicated, multifactorial phenomena that are influenced by numerous variables. So if you look at heart disease, for example, if you have somebody who's overweight, who's smoking, who's got a high cholesterol, high blood pressure, eats junk, actually what you could look at is dropping their cholesterol. And if you do that, you make a small but appreciable difference on their cardiac risk. Mm -hmm. If they stop smoking, they may get a a 5 or 10% reduction in cardiac risk. But if, if you drop their cholesterol, and you get them to stop smoking, you get this multiplicative effect. So the, the variables multiply. Absolutely. And, and, and in heart disease, if you got the person to stop smoking, lose weight, start eating healthy food, if you attacked all of those risk factors, you can make a huge impact on the trajectory of the illness. Now, I think if you bring the same model to psychological well-being, our sort of philosophy is that if you put these into the water, they could be protective. But then if people did develop psychological problems, they'd have a toolkit that would help them regain their equilibrium more rapidly. So using the sort of multifactorial model, the example you've given with heart disease sort of suggests that actually I'd be best off trying to use all of these tools that we've talked about, so positive pin board and the inner coach all together at once, and that will have the biggest impact. But it's quite a lot to do. It is a lot to do. And I think that's a really good point, Rick, because I think if you try and do it all together, it's actually sort of it's overfacing you. Mm-hmm. I think I would, and what we often do with groups of people when they work together is get them to set up one tool to practice it on their own, to encourage each other to do it. Because one of the, the interesting things is that social learning has about four times the benefit of individual learning. So if you tell someone that smoking is bad for you or exercise is good for you, The chances of someone making a change on the basis of the information, even if they completely buy it, is is quite modest. It's about 20% of people will make a change. Whereas if you get a group of people to start to change things, you get this uh, multiplicative effect as well. I'm going to do it. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, As always, you can get more information about all the tools mentioned by visiting positivegroup.org. Pi was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by Amirik Edwards with Dr. Brian Marion and featured psychologist David Clark. It was produced by L. Scott and the executive producer was Harry Watson. Positive Group worked with organisations including schools and universities as well as supporting parents and individuals to improve their skills in building and sustaining psychological well-being. If you want to find out more about the work of Positive, go to positivegroup.org.